welcome again to another episode of Complimentary Cinema at the O&M Stockroom. My name is Ken. And I'm your other host, uh, Brian McGarry. And tonight for Complimentary Cinema, we'll be talking about the 2003 TV movie film, Deep Shock. That is correct. So a uh, couple things about Complimentary Cinema, if you're new to the program. Uh, we like to talk about movies that you can find for free on the internet and watch uh, stream without any charge. Uh, this film's currently available on YouTube uh, with a lot of ads, so you definitely might want to use an ad blocker if you don't like ads, but I'm sure that they would prefer that you did not use an ad blocker. And another little caveat with uh, complimentary cinema, um, we do massive, massive, massive spoilers. Yes. So just want to make sure that that's uh, known and understood before you continue uh, listening to us blab on about this film. If you're really worried about the ending of Deep Shock, please go watch it first and then come back and listen to this. If, if it's really going to make a big difference in your life to know the ending of this film. Uh, having watched this film. Ken, or any details about this film at all. Uh, that's good advice, uh, definitely. Uh, I will say, though, having watched this film, my life might be slightly worse. Hmm. Certainly not better by knowing, uh, th- knowing this film in detail as we do now. Maybe your life has been made better by temporarily being made worse. I'm just going to go ahead and roll with that and maybe, say, uh, say say that's good. Yeah. Maybe the worsening of our lives has somehow bettered our worst lives. <laughs> and on that note. On that note. So let's uh, let's talk about this movie for a little bit. So uh, so deep shock. So first of all, let's let's talk about how you selected this film. So, what were the criteria? So the, the criteria that, that I, I, I used to select this film, which I think we'll probably be going with uh, here on out in the future is a, you can find it for free on the internet and B, uh, I just, uh, I, I picked it based on the, the poster and the title. I went into this film knowing literally nothing else about it. I didn't watch a trailer, which I believe you watched. Yes. So you, you told me the name of the movie. So I went and just found a one minute trailer on YouTube and about 10 seconds into watching the trailer, I immediately texted Brian back and said, "Yes, this is the movie." It's the movie, yeah. So we're just gonna be we're just gonna be picking them. Just uh, you know, does it look good or sound good? And by good, I mean plausibly interesting. Something I've never heard of. Something just kind of random and out there. And that's basically our criteria. Yeah, and I mean, g- going along with the other theme of you know, a bunch of diff- completely different kinds of movies. Nothing relating them other than the fact they're free. And that that's about it. You know, we like our free movies, especially in these unprecedented times. Yes, absolutely. Financial, economic and medical duress that we're all going through right now. I mean, we're looking out for the viewer here. You know, we really are. Or the listener, I guess. The listeners that will become viewers. Maybe. Maybe if they enjoy our our uh, our takes on these films. I mean, we'll see after this review. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. So, a little backstory on this film. So, it was made in 2003. It was a uh, TV movie released on the Sci-Fi Network, produced by DEJ Productions, a Unified Film Organization, and Eel Productions. Yes. The director is a Philip J. Roth. You want? I want to say Philip J. Fry, but we're not so lucky. Mm-hmm. 
the Philip J. Uh, Roth, who has uh, done innumerable uh, crap TV movies, including Falcon Down, which I think was his answer to Black Hawk Down. Yes, there are a number of movies that are direct ripoffs of other popular at the time movies. And this and this film is is definitely a ripoff of some other well known films. So it's an underwater film. Yeah. And it's a uh, probably the two films it rips off are The Abyss and uh, God. I, I wanted to say Deep Impact, but I'm, it's not Deep Impact. It's the uh, the, the with one Samuel L. Jackson yeah. and like Sharon Stone, so the Sharks, right? Uh, something. It was Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. There you go. So th- this film's a rip off of The Abyss and Deep Blue Sea, and a god awful one at that. And with, Leviathan. I was gonna say a with, little bit with some hints of some like of those submarine movies. You know, like, well, that's where the abyss comes in, you know, because there's there's a little bit of that in there. Yeah. You know, but and also like, did you ever see Leviathan from 1989? I don't think so. Peter Weller film, the guy who played RoboCop that takes place underwater in a scientific lab. OK. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, sci fi fuckery afoot. OK. So that's a good one. And then you've also got the kind of trope of these TV movies. A lot of them they made with weird uh, other monsters as like the you know like you're you're famously like sharknado or like you know things that really shouldn't be the big bad monster that are for some reason it's almost like they took a bunch of uh just random animals put them in a hat and they just they'd pick one and be like okay so that's our monster of the week now um if you couldn't figure out from the uh the name of one of the production companies eel productions uh the, the big monster in this film is a big electric eel Multiple electric eels. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. There's a lot of them, but more on that later. So uh, do you want to give us a a breakdown of the uh, the opening synopsis for this, Ken? So to start this movie, we start at the UN. Oh, no, actually. To start this movie, we start in a submarine. And uh, they're conducting some kind of research slash attack. An ex- a military exercise. Yes, it is a military submarine. And um, there's a, 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 an unknown something in the water, and there's a whole bunch of like, it's coming right for us, are we going to shoot it? And at the last second, they decide to, to shoot at it, and then we cut away. Very abruptly, I might add. We don't know what happened to this crew of, of some kind of American military crew. The USS Jimmy Carter is the name of the uh, of the submarine in question in this particular scene. And my God, does the name Jimmy Carter strike heart into the fear of men. Named for war-loving President Jimmy Carter. The militaristic... The Iron Fist. Hawkish, um, brutal Jimmy Carter. So anyway. <laughs> so anyway. So, yep. So, so they cut away from, uh, you know, so, so they kind of leave us on this on a sort of cliffhanger as to what becomes of the submarine, what becomes of this crew. Yeah. And we immediately cut to aftermath. They immediately cut to the aftermath at the United Nations. One of the great things about this film is that they have a gigantic title card for every single location that takes up the entire screen when when you uh, go to a new location. My favorite part is when it's the fifth or sixth time visiting that location and they give you the title card each and every single time. Yes. They've already established that we are going to the United Nations. We've seen the person from the United Nations speak at least five times. And they still put the United Nations card before this 
and not before the scene either. Like like As a few the seconds scene is into rolling. it. Yeah. Yes. So this is the first time we've seen it and we we don't exactly know what we're in for and uh it just continues throughout the film. But it's like, you know, lately if if you watch, you know, high quality shows like Jag, you know, or you know, say even like a Hunt for Red October, you know, other like military uh based uh entertainment like in in like a little corner of the screen they'll they'll give you like a little you know like a little indication of like what ship they're on or where they're at and maybe like you know like oh eight hundred hour Zulu time or something, but you don't get any of that you just get a gigantic black screen with huge white text plus you telling you where you are you only ever do it the first time you should only ever do it the first time because then the second time you're like oh yeah we're at the United Nations this is where all the people are and there's a bunch of flags in the background and this is the same person we've seen talking several times already yeah you would think like you know maybe the second time I, I can understand just to really like pound home the point I but could, the third time the no. fourth time the fifth time I is it still ne- is it still necessary it was unnecessary the second time it already it, stood out the second time it was unnecessary the second time but I could forgive the second time the third time was absolutely unforgivable. Yes. Yes. I, I was rethinking my life choices by the time we got to the third one, and then we got to the fourth and fifth. But anyway. But anyway. We went to the United Nations, which is a a auditorium at a community college, it looks like. Um, it doesn't a pretty look, nice one, actually. It doesn't look anything like the United Nations, but they put a bunch of flags on stage, and they put a podium, and they put like some some. People that are supposed to be like a, a, like security council, and they're all sitting out in the audience in these chairs in the in theater chairs in theater in chairs theater chairs that are like bright orange, like you would see like at a uh, community college theater. So anyway, and this they've used this this set. I should I struggled to even call it a set because eventually they turn the stage into what is like the command center. The, the United Nations Command Center. And it's yeah. the same stage still. It, it, it's the same stage and the same walls. They but just shot it a little different way to make it look like it's in an office instead of... It was a great use of the $20 budget that this film had. Yes. It took them like one afternoon and one set to film like all of those scenes. So no, it was a good use of maybe, budget. Maybe two afternoons, Ken. An Let's afternoon, give them a little credit. An afternoon and a half. Afternoon and a half. So... So at the United Nations, a, uh, a doctor, Anne Fletcher, portrayed by uh, Australian actress Simone McKinnon, uh, is giving a, uh, a speech talking about um, issues happening up in the, uh, the North Pole uh, relating to global warming, uh, the melting of the caps. And she gets into it with a uh, fellow doctor, uh, Chomsky, portrayed by Mark Shepard, whom some of you may know from Firefly, Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek Voyager. A really great character actor who's been in all kinds of stuff. One of the few actual actors that I actually knew in this film. And they get into it for a little bit. And essentially, she's trying to say that there's some weird transmissions coming from the North Pole that are causing uh, the problems that are occurring. While uh, Dr. Chomsky is saying... Well, he's just not really, he's not really giving an alternate uh, perspective on what's going on, but he's basically discrediting Dr. Fletcher. Well, he was basically saying that his solution was they just needed to close the trench. If they just closed it up, then that the problem would go away because whatever the problem is, is coming out of the trench. So if you just close it up, 
on the surface, then then you're fine. So yeah, so there yeah, so in Dr. Fletcher's analysis, there was a trench producing the transmissions. So like 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 any good uh, American uh, militant person, they just want to blow it up and shoot it to solve the problem. Now, I just want to point out he's not American either. He's not, but he has the American mentality. So during the course of this meeting, they basically decide that Dr. Fletcher should no longer be involved in the research going on in the North Pole, and they ship her off to somewhere. Meanwhile, uh, this uh, there's a base at the North Pole that is conducting further experiments and wants to send nukes into this uh, magic trench where all the bad things are happening. And the name of this uh, facility is called Hubris. There was uh, immediate eye-rolling. Um, the fact that they named this station Hubris. Should we give the folks the definition of hubris at this time, Ken? That, that would be great. Okay. So, quick Google search. Hubris is the characteristic of excessive confidence or arrogance, which leads a person to believe that he or she may do no wrong. The uh, overwhelming pride caused by hubris is often considered a flaw in character. And that is the name of this uh, scientific installation. Now, why would anyone name? It's not even just scientific, though. It's military. It's a military. It is scientific, but it's 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 a it, military scientific operation. Right. Why would you name that station that? That would be the last thing you would want to name any of those things. That would be the last thing that anybody, any reasonable person, anybody who actually, any reasonable author of such a TV film would maybe reconsider. Like you know, you might put the hubris in as like a like a fill-in name for the installation prior to you know coming up with a final actual screen used name and i think somewhere along the way they just decided uh, we're just going to keep hubris and we're just going to roll with that and not only is it named hubris but it is painted in the brightest paint you could possibly think of right on the front of the station yes in giant letters and so so here's a great thing about this station it is largely underwater with a little bit poking through the North polar ice. So it's a, it's an underwater facility. And, uh, as we're being introduced to this station, we see a lot of, um, middle-aged half bald men operating the, the facility. There's a lot, there was a lot of that also on the, uh, submarine Jimmy Carter as well. Um, just as a side note, I just thought it was interesting. They, they had a casting type, I think. Um, just a lot of a lot of lot of young boys who grew up into like you know, faded old men who wanted to live some of their glory, their glory dreams of being like a, a military badass. I think that's who they they casted for this. So at some point, one of the gentlemen in in charge of the station, he's like a second in command, decides that hey, we're not going to just nuke this thing. Well, and the reason is because he knew what the original scientist lady. He was in cahoots with Dr. Fletcher a little bit. He knew bit. about her research, and he believed it. So he wanted, you know, let's give it another chance. Sure. But, uh, yeah, they didn't They didn't want to let that happen. They didn't want to let that happen. So what What, what does happen is, on this uh, underwater pressurized station full of metal, uh, they decide to have a shootout in a nuclear weapon uh, torpedo room. Let's just say that again for, for everyone listening. They had a shootout in an underwater 
pressurized nuclear torpedo room. And that was like the plan. Like they planned to go in there and do that. It's not like it just happened. Like like the people went in there under orders to shoot him. Yeah. And, and kill him in an underwater pressurized nuclear torpedo room. Surprisingly, that all went fine. It did go fine. No structural damage at all. They just shot him to and the he craft. died. <laughs> yeah, so you know, so so they shoot him and his name is not important. He's just a throwaway character and then they move on. Um so soon, you know, the station, they launch their nukes. The entities that inhabit the trench awaken and stop the torpedoes and then because the the entities in question are badly badly animated electric eels, they just come and electrocute everybody and fry everyone and the United Nations loses uh, contact with the station. Now, since, we, since we're to a little bit more of this part, um, let's talk a little bit more about the animation. Let's talk a little bit about the animation. Because this was Ken. really our first view. Up until this point, we had had um, not a whole lot of animation with like the submarine in the beginning, just like a little bit, and not enough that it was like embarrassing. Um, and then we get to the station, and we get to the eels. And this is when it becomes really apparent that this this movie is not um, not quite up to spec, is it? It's not artistic, um, not artistic, and not uh, not well funded either. My first thought immediately was like, this would have been a lot cheaper if they had made a model, and it would have looked better than what what they got. Yeah. So um, apparently, originally the 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 animation team for the eels was going to be like this, this nice American team. And then they decided they didn't want to flush out that much money. So they hired a more inexpensive Bulgarian team. Yes. So these are inexpensive Bulgarian underwater electric eels. And that they look exactly like, like you would just imagine just now. They look very bad. They look incredibly bad. And here's, and this is the first time we're seeing them. You see them clearly. It's not like they're there, obscured there, or yeah, in the shadows. There's no buildup at all. They, None. You, you see them. Like, you see them. Yeah. Like, practically wearing a top hat and a cane. Like, they're there <laughs> on stage in the spotlight, so to speak. Yeah. So, that's a great way to Just, build tension about your main uh, monster. Absolutely. I, I love... Just show them in the first act. I love having everything revealed right away. Nothing being left to the imagination. Yep. So, that's, so those are the eels. And here's another great thing about these eels. Well, not necessarily about the eels, but about the animation. Um, quite a few times we see water in this film, you know, being set underwater, things leak. There's, you know, hole compromises, there's hole breaches, water sprays. So this movie set underwater. There is not an actual drop of water in the film. Every single time we see water is animated. Yes. And terribly. There was one scene where they splashed some people. When, when he was trying to close the door and water was splashing in. I think that was real water. Okay, okay, so that, that was, was real it. Water. That was a guy on the other side of the door splashing a bucket of water in. Just, just, just chucking a bucket, yeah. Just some of these other scenes, it's like they could have gotten a garden hose and like had a guy like take his thumb and like just kind of press down on the opening to like make it like spray hard. They didn't even bother doing that. No. On a couple of times where that might even have been slightly effective. And like the animation for those scenes was the same animation every time. Whenever there was water coming down the hall. Yeah, it was the same. It was the yeah. same animation. 
It wasn't even, they didn't even modify it at all. It was the same pattern of water coming. It's like they just decided like, you know, that looks good. We're just going to roll with it. Let's copy and paste. Copy and paste. Yeah. Yeah. So I stand corrected. So there, there is a few drops of water. Very little for an underwater movie. So like, like, so in the abyss, you know, James Cameron filled some like, um, unused nuclear silos with just untold gallons and filmed underwater. Like there's maybe, so maybe, what would you say? There's maybe a liter of water in this film. Easily, yeah. About a liter. A spray bottle. A spray bottle. A gentle misting. Uh, 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 one healthy bucket of water. <laughs> a healthy bucket of water. Okay, so maybe a gallon. Maybe mm. a gallon. Gallon tops. I mean, enough that the guy like is like, oh, it's so, the water's so cold. I need to take my shirt off. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. But he didn't even get that wet either. Yeah, he really didn't, and he seemed kind of a pansy for taking off one of his two shirts. Anyway. <laughs> but anyway. So they lose contact with the station. Um, let's backtrack just a moment. So when the guy's having the, the, the standoff in the torpedo room, he's like, I just want to make a phone call. And he, uh, they, one of them gives him a phone, and he calls Dr. Fletcher, who is running in the woods in D.C. Right. Or maybe it's a park. It does say DC, though. It, it does has, say it has DC. A card. It does say DC. We get another one of those famous title cards. So it says DC, and she's running in the snow in what appears to be the woods. Yeah. And they talk on the phone while that while that exchange is going. So after they after he dies, and they lose contact with the station, they decide, oh my God, we need Doctor Fletcher, and we need to go back to the hubris and figure out what's gone wrong and what's going on, and they find her skiing in the snow in the woods cross-country skiing cross-country skiing in maine in what looks pretty much to be the exact same location now i'm not an expert here but the first scene she was in united nations which is in fact in new york yes then she was in dc running in the woods a very short time later yes then she was in maine skiing yes should she not have been in new york for all these things you would assume but let's let's just assume that she she let, uh, so okay so you could stretch credibility to say that maybe the events away from her took place over a period of like say 3 or 4 days they did seem to take place in fairly quick succession but we, like, let's say that we could draw them out just like 3 or 4 days let let's just you know for the sake of argument let's say that the the other the, all those events these the submarine the the hubris getting attacked, her being picked up in Maine. Let's say that that's a full week. What is this recently unemployed doctor doing just traveling around the north the northeast? Just just for the exercises exercise? Just exercising. Like so she was in so she was in New York and like Central Park isn't good enough for? Her. Well and like did she run to Maine? Like, did she ski to Maine? Like, she may have. Has this been one long journey? But it's like, if you're in New York, why go to DC and then up to Maine? Yeah, that doesn't make you know? any sense. That doesn't make sense. And you didn't even need to, to. The thing is, like you said, it looks like the same place. You didn't even need to have a place name. You could have just cut back to her and, yeah, okay, she's running in the woods somewhere. Yeah. See, the, the only reason we know that the, uh, the snowy woods area was in DC and then in Maine. It's because the this television movie made a point to tell us. Yes. The obnoxious title cards. We should have counted how many there were in the entire film. 
But I, for one, am not going to go back and watch to find out. I know it, we went to the United Nations at least five times. Yeah. It may have been six. Yeah. I think that was the one that was used the most. Yeah. And then the other one that's... There's, there's the got to be 15 to 20 title, title cards in this film. The other one... If I just had to guess. That really hit me. That really hit me. We'll, we'll get into it later. But there was a one point where when we went to the United Nations, we waited for it because we knew it was coming and cheered. We actually cheered when we saw the title <laughs> card. That was great. That was about the fourth time, I think. Yeah, four, yeah, four, yeah. That was toward the end, but not the last. Not, no, the, not last. the last. I think that was the penultimate yes. United Nations uh, title card. Anyway, so, so we pick up the scientist lady. We we, we pick up Doctor Fletcher in in Maine. They and, say we're going to give you another shot because what we did didn't work. But the uh, the opposing scientist is also going along on this journey. Yeah, bitch ass uh, McFuckface, I think his name is in this and, one. And also, the person who picked up the scientist lady, it turns out, is her ex. And he's Mr. Military Man. He's he's a captain. He's super square jawed, butt chin, David Keith. Yes. Playing Captain Reigns. So we've, we've finally been introduced to our other main player, and he's coming along. And he has a history. He's actually, and he's actually top to build in this piece of junk. Yeah. Top build. And. For a minute, I thought it was Robert Robert Wall or Robert Rur. I, I can't remember the guy's name. I thought it was the journalist guy from, uh, oh man, the first Batman movie with Michael Keaton, Vicky Vale's uh, colleague. I thought it was him because they kind of have the same look, but this guy's a little more macho and a little more chiseled in in his expression. And uh, he was an officer and a gentleman with Richard Gere. If you remember that film, came out in '82. I think that's the, that's this guy's other big claim to fame. So another actual actor. We have a couple in here. They just wanted to work, so they 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 picked this one up. It's kind of like when you're unemployed and you're getting unemployment benefits, but you still have to prove that you're like actually looking for work. I think this this is that kind of movie for actors. Yeah, it could be. I mean, they I guess maybe top billing they might have actually got paid something. He might have, yeah. You know, just just a little taste. Because you know? I mean, we we all know the rest of this didn't cost much to make. No, it sure didn't. So they pick so th- so they pick her up in they pick her up in Maine. Yeah, in the woods, in the snow in Maine. Yeah. And then they take her back to the United Nations to show her a computer screen. They sure do. And then they talk about hey, well you know there's a there's a flight waiting for us in Bangor, Maine. So then they go back to Maine to head to the North Pole. It's almost as if like they thought they were going to have it in one order. And then they rearranged the order of how things happened. It's possible. Or, or they wanted to portray these characters as like low trotting jet setting badasses. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> With how badly this is filmed, you know, and it, it's anyone's guess. It's anyone's guess. But in any regard, they're going to get this flight to the North Pole. So they get on this plane. And then we get the traveling red line montage straight scene. out of indiana jones yes you get the red line moving forward towards the north pole and then what happens what As happens it, but, what happens but 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 you do that when you're going to a new and exotic location right yes you would do that in a film yes you would. We have already been to the north pole twice in this film this is true twice twice we know where exactly where we're going. They, we, they've we talked about it at we, length. We even know what what the entire base looks like. We've already seen the entire inside of this thing. There's there's nothing left to be revealed, and yet they are. I, and it's like, oh, we're going on this big adventure now. 
Here we the go. Adve- the adventure's beginning again. Like, oh, okay. Well, they're going to go with that place we already know about. Just follow the red line to the North Pole. And then what happens when they get to the North Pole, Ken? Um, there's no visibility. None. So the, the they crash land. They do crash land. What happens before then, though? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, dialogue on the plane? <laughs> the title card that says North Pole. Oh, yeah, we get another title card. <laughs> we get another title card, the North Pole. Yeah. And then they crash land. And then they crash land right after... The pilot talks about how many times he had made that same run and landed just fine. Yeah. But all of a sudden, the weather is slightly bad, and they they crash land, and both pilots are killed. Well, they even had a throwaway line in there, too, of like, oh, there was like the seismic activity. Maybe something's changed on the runway. And they decided to, you know, the jerk scientist decided to land anyway. So, of course, there's this giant Yeah, ice. I already I forgot that part. Yeah, there's this yeah. giant ice thing in the middle of the runway. So, yeah, they just run straight into it. And uh, it only damages the very front and the pilots and everyone else and everything else is fine. I mean, they weren't fine. I mean, like there was a couple of blinking lights and there was like a little drip of blood in somebody's forehead. I mean, the fuselage was still complete. Oh, yeah, it was perfectly fine. Just like it happens in a real plane crash. Right. Only like the very tip gets smushed, right? Yes. Like like a Coke can, you know, just. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it looked like. Exactly. But they hit it, it going like, I don't even know. Like pretty fast because I mean here's the thing with speed. Okay, so even if even if Doctor Chomsky said yeah yeah land land let's land, it was still not a graceful landing. No, it was a terrible landing. It was terrible, and people died. Two people died. Yeah, including the only the only black man that I saw in this entire film. That's also true. He was one of the pilots, and he had like one line of dialogue. That's also true. Of, this is a very uh, a lot of pasty white people. This is a in this very film. very ethnocentric film. Yeah, very little representation. Yep. And which reminds me, I think uh, I think Doctor Fletcher is the only woman in the film too. I can't recall another one. Yeah, there might have been one in the background somewhere. Yeah, the only but, speaking one for sure. And yeah, they, the only, yeah. And you know what? That's other funny thing. They said, uh, well, we'll get to that. But basically, at one point, she says, you know. A lot of good men and women died here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, like, I remember, like, where just, are the hell are like, these women you're like, talking yeah, about? Yeah, what women? I, I don't these are all dudes. Any. A lot of like middle-aged, uh, not very fit and balding men as yeah, well. Yeah, just like we see in the military. The hairlines are terrible in this film. Let's just, <laughs> but you know, we'll talk about that another time. Anyway, so we, we finally get to the station, and um, it turns out that uh, right above the hatch. There's a patch of um, the, quote, outside that's actually just like some white fluff and some white carpets or towels or something that are thrown around. And they filmed it just straight so you can exa- you can see exactly how bad the set is. What, so what, what, what's fantastic about, about this set, it really does. I mean, you can see the lines of where the blankets end. Yes. It was so badly done. I, I could not believe what I was seeing. Not even like like in like in a high school theater production, you can get away with that that level of of competence or incompetence, if you will. But even a, a TV movie, like even a would a Hallmark TV movie pull such a blunder? No, no. They get some freaking snow. No, they they, they were literally had a scene where they were outside in the snow earlier in the film, like literally, literally in the outside in the real snow. They couldn't get some like B-roll footage of some snow to like put in there. It's just amazing, yeah. 
So you just you so they're just on a dimly lit set with his hat sticking up out of the out of these blankets covered in white fluff. It was absolutely atrocious. Yeah. That that itself is worth the price of admission. It was wild. It just was that wild. One one spot. And like there's definitely a way you could shoot it where you wouldn't see any of that. And they just it just was going straight on and the camera wasn't even moving. So like it's super obvious. They didn't even try to hide that. No. They they were just That's like, the most this is fine. Part. This is fine. So they finally get to the station. Yeah, they go in. Everyone's fried to a crisp. Everyone died. They're 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 all dead. Uh, the, the one good makeup effect, though, was the uh, the original commander of the hubris. They did a great job of charring a a dummy or a mannequin or whatever to look like it had been properly electrocuted. Some of the other extras and actors, they just put some like shoe polish on their face. Yep. Yeah, they, they didn't. Yeah, none of the other people were visible other than just dirtying them up. Um, the the commander's the only one that actually looked like he was fried. So when they pulled him up in the chair, it was like, oh, it was a gross out moment, kind of. Yeah, like it, it, it was well done. That was well done. That makeup effect was well done. Yeah. And, and who knows? Maybe, maybe it was actually makeup and not just doing up a dummy. But and, it was uh, it was good. And Brian pointed something else out too while we were watching it that they came to the station knowing that they had lost contact with these people and then were shocked when they got in and that all the people were dead. Like, uh, what did they expect would happen? And so, so here's the thing. So even, so if they knew, even if they knew that people might be injured, there was not one medic, there was not one doctor or anything among their, their little five person crew to assist, uh, the station, assuming of course that the two pilots were not the, the medically trained personnel. No, they were the pilot trained personnel. They were the pilot trained personnel. Meanwhile, the two doctors on this mission are some kind of scientific doctors, not really medical doctors. And apparently they brought two like torpedo guys. And, <laughs> and a couple of grunts. One of which, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, is Sean Whalen. Sean Whalen, if, if you're of a certain age, you'll remember from the, the Got Milk commercials from the 90s. There's this great scene where a guy's listening to the radio while making a peanut butter sandwich and they're, they're doing some trivia and you get a good pan around of his, uh, his, his home. And it's just full of Aaron Burr and early American history, uh, memorabilia and items. And they ask a, a trivia question for relating to Aaron Burr. And he's like, Oh my God, I'm the perfect man to answer this. So he calls into the radio station to win the prize but he has so much peanut butter in his mouth that he's unable to communicate his answer to the uh, to the radio personality, and he doesn't win the contest because he doesn't have any milk. Now that guy's been in all kinds of stuff since he was in Men in Black, he was in Twister, Never Been Kissed. He's he's done a bunch of small roles. Great character actor. A lot of comedy roles too. A lot of comedy roles. He's all, an expressive face, and he also looks like a like a he's he's like a. He's got like that Steve Buscemi thing mm. where he's like a skeleton, just very loosely skinned mm-hmm. and like a little bit of tuft of hair on top. Mm. Like he's got the Steve Buscemi thing going, but he's a great, great character actor. All I'm ever going to think of anytime I see him is it's the got milk guy. Now you're also going to think he's that, that one guy that was in that one mil- movie. That one guy in that one movie. No, th- really not because even <laughs> though I've seen... All of the other films that that I, I saw him listed in, 
I don't remember him in any of those movies. Hmm. I know I've seen him, and I know when I see him, I'm like, oh, it's the Got Milk guy. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, I'm never. I am not going to remember him from this. Yeah. Because even after we post this, I'm never going to listen to this podcast again either. That's fair. Nor am I ever going to. Nor am I ever going to watch that that movie again. <laughs> He's just the Got Milk guy. So the Got Milk guy, yeah. and his, uh, his his compatriot, you know, they're they're the torpedo dudes and they do doing the-, the tech stuff, and they they resurrect this station which was completely wiped out with elect- electromagnetic pulse pulses. Yeah. Yes, an EMP pulse is uh, something that these electric eels are capable of producing. Uh, just some fantastic writing in this film, isn't there, Ken? They're, they're truly fantastic is. writing. Very they, technical, very accurate. They thought of everything. They thought of everything, everything. So they decide, uh, the, the scientist lady gets to work trying to crack the code of whatever these transmissions are. So she's trying to get the data from the computers. Um, the grunt guys are cleaning up bodies. Um, then the, uh, the, the bad scientist is, is plotting in the background to try to get authorization to launch more missiles, basically. He's gone behind uh, behind everyone's back. Uh, but to do this, he needs to have a communications back to the United Nations. So they send one of the guys out to um, launch a new transmitter. So, yeah, so the original transmitter was fried in the original attack. So th- what they need to do is get a new uplink, right? So they, they send, not Sean Whalen, but his buddy that he's with, they put him in a mini sub and then send him to go nuke the ice, to blow up the ice, well, not necessarily nuke the ice, but torpedo. Blow, torpedo the ice to make a hole so they can put another uplink there, which uh, you immediately pointed out, why don't they just go through the, the, the damn hatch that they all came in and just plop it right there on the surface? Right. Because that would make sense. That would have made sense and involved zero risk to to anybody's life or well being. But instead, they they stick him out there. The eels come. They attack. Shenanigans ensue. Now he does get the uplink. Though he does get the uplink. Though. He launches the uplink right before he gets attacked. Yes. So the uplink is complete, but the the uh, first expendable guy um, gets wiped out basically. And then uh, the the military guy, Captain Rains. You know, gets in Chomsky's face and wants to know, why didn't you just send him up through the hatch? And I was like, thank you. And it was, you know, because he wanted to provoke the eels to see what they would do. Right. He wanted see justification they- to, to go back with to say, oh, they're attacking. So we need to just take them out. Yep. And because this guy is, I'll, I'll give him this. He is absolutely single-minded of purpose in this film. Yeah. He just wants to kill these things. He wants to wipe them out. He wants to nuke them. He doesn't care what he needs to make that happen, just as long as he makes that happen, whatever the cost. Yep. Would make him a, a fantastic corporate CEO. Yeah, I definitely got that vibe. Definitely not uh, as much like scientist guy or like, you know what I mean? He it's like, it's almost like, like it's almost like he's a doctor of evil. Almost. Almost, but not quite. Yeah. He's just, he's not that evil. It would have been, it would have made more sense if there was some other military or like you said corporate kind of motive for him 
That's like more a, the character he was. Like a like like a rocket scientist, like say yeah. like a missile specialist scientist, yeah. mm-hmm. a doctor of missiles, <laughs> or even like maybe like uh, the corporate angle was like maybe he was like the geologist, and like some company wants to come in and like do something, but that's not the story at all. You know, like 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 if the tr- if the trench that the eels had had opened up and built. Like contained like really precious materials or minerals, or and that they could come in and like mine, or like they're producing the heat, and maybe like someone wants to come in and like harness the heat. a geothermal doctor. Yeah, yeah. See, all all interesting ideas that they did not explore. He's just a doctor of something. Yeah, we never find ne- out. What. Never explained. It's just left to you know. It's funny. They'll reveal everything else to us right away, but they won't reveal what kind of doctor he is. Other than just loosely, just vaguely academic, vaguely militaristic, yeah. and that's all we get. Because he's not just a not just any scientist. Like he's given, he's given directive to override the military commander's orders. Yeah, he's basically in charge. He's basically in charge by the the UN. And I, I have great respect for the UN, Ken, but the UN doesn't do anything like this. No, you know. They they send peacekeepers to Rwanda while genocides happen, and that's about the extent of it. That's another reason why it didn't make as much sense to have them as the the main political force. I think behind it. I mean, like, well, I mean, considering like the nature of the casting, you know, like you got an Australian lady, you got like an English guy, okay, you got a couple of Russian actors. I mean, they really they do give that a, a more international flair. And it makes it a little more marketable to say, you know, your Bulgarian CGI team. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of get that, but just the amount of credit that they give the UN. Yeah. And like, uh, like, like the, the G8. The UN in this movie got something done. Yeah, they got something done. I mean, whether you know, regardless of whether or not it was completely evil and stupid is beside the point. Right. But like the UN like decided on something quickly. Yeah. And then they just did it. And then they just did it. Like that doesn't that doesn't even uh, that just never happens. Yeah. And, and and so this was in two thousand three. You know this is a, this, so this film came out the same time that Colin Powell was going to the UN, talking about Saddam's uh, you know chemical weapons that they had been hiding and building and stashing and all this other stuff and we couldn't get a resolution for hardly anything. Hmm. But if you're gonna send a hundred you know a hundred nukes into a trench in the North Pole, by God, the UN is going to be 100% behind that. Yep. So they get their, uh, they get their little uplink communication. He gets his approval to do, uh, to do the deed with the nukes. Well, and they also, be, as a result of the previous attack, one of the eels comes into and through the hatch in the bottom of the station. Yes, the moon pool. And it establishes some kind of telekinetic link a vulcan mind meld with uh the main scientist lady dr fletcher dr fletcher and dr fletcher um so she has this experience where she now understands what she needs to do to make the program work somehow um and she feels like she can communicate with these things now so she gets to work on that uh while nefarious scientist man is 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 putting his plan into action and uh so you know, after they're basically told, "Hey, they're going to be nu- you know nuking this trench," uh, the ex-husband comes down to uh, Doctor Fletcher's little lab there by the moon pool, 
and is basically just like, Hey, you know, like the world's going to end. It's all terrible. We're probably going to die. And then, uh, they kind of get like, you know, a little, they canoodle a little bit and he kind of puts her on the desk and it's like, you know, like the love scene of the film. But since this was, you know, made for TV and it was probably unrated, you know, they, they just do a little bit of necking and some bad flirting. And then they talk about going back to work. And then that's, that's the end of that scene. It's very awkward. It was the most awkward love scene I have seen. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Nothing comes to mind just off the top of my head. But it, it was incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. It was uncomfortable to watch. And you could tell like the actors were uncomfortable performing that scene. It's one of those things where someone, someone in a meeting somewhere said, like, we need to check this box off. Like, we need to have a love interest scene. Where can we just force that in and, and just wedge put, it in? Put that in somewhere where it doesn't make any sense. Let's just do it here. It's like they're alone in a room. They might as well kiss for a little while. And then we just move on. And then we just move on like it never happened. And I'm, I'm trying to remember what happened after that. So I think at that point, we look, we try to look at the time and realize like we had another like 45 minutes to go. And we were just like, my God, how are we going to get through the next 45 minutes of this? What, what else can they possibly have happen in 45 minutes to justify this running time? And I feel like there's even there's hardly anything even to say about it because the plot becomes so circular. So the, the, our, our, our heroes decide they're going to get into a sub because they're gonna, the, the bad guys are going to launch all the missiles and everything's going to go to hell. So they're going to try to like, communicate with these creatures. They get in a mini sub and head out. And then Chomsky back at the hubris, you know, he gets attacked by the eels and then he says, Oh, come back. I need to be helped. And so while the, you know, so while, uh, our heroes reigns and Fletcher are discussing how they can use the mini sub to escape all the, the, the coming doom and damage and get back to the surface. And we're like, okay, that's where this movie's going. Okay. We're, we're all for it. They just suddenly decide to go back to the hubris to save the guy who's been trying to get everyone killed. Yes. And this is our already like our third or fourth cycle of the people shoot the torpedoes, the eels come and destroy the torpedoes, and then they attack the station. We've already been through this. Yeah, we've been through this a couple of times, and we're through it again while we this is exactly going on. We know exactly what's going to happen. So they go back to the station. They get the guy. Which and is then- now like 50% flooded. 52% flooded, yeah. according to their miraculous computers. And let's just take a moment to talk about the computers in this film, Ken. Yeah. So from 2003, uh, for, for a very high-tech kind of movie, you know, you've got like this high-tech base. You've got high-tech equipment. You've got lots of LED lights. You've got chrome ladders. You've got mini subs. You've got CGI water. Now, what kind of computer monitors are you going to have? Like old ass giant computer monitors. Giant. Made even gianter by some kind of apparatus that they put on top of these old CRTs. Just to make them look like they're not bought off the shelf, you know, crappy old CRT monitors. Yeah, like, so basically they took a bunch of 80, 1980s style huge CRTs. You know, probably beige or the off-white. And then they took like this like uh, 
penisy oval shaped thing and just stuck it on top. It's like molded plastic. Molded plastic. I, I, I don't even know if I'd go that far. I mean, it's shaped plastic, shaped foam. Maybe they probably just use some kind of foam, you know, and then just smoothed it and painted it to make it look like plastic or, or something. They they didn't even try to make it look like metal, but it's funny because there's this little uh, vent on top because you have to let the monitors vent, right? So it's kind of like um like a, like a boomerang shaped vent on top of this attachment they put on top, and you can see clear as day the old monitor underneath. Yeah, it's pretty sloppy. I mean, it's just why even bother? Why even bother? Because they wanted to have the screens on to flash a bunch of like messages and and data and stuff like that. And a lot of them are just plain blue in this. You have a lot of blue screen of death in this film yep. as well, or static, static pictures, or, you know, static pictures, and that. Getting back on track here. So they go back to the station. They have some some mouthy words with Chomsky. And then Reigns is telling Fletcher, oh, just let him go. And then even though they came back just for him. And then she decides to just keep working on her little uh, her translator program. And she finally gets in contact at this point. Yes. She, she messages them. Instant messages them via the computer. She slid She slid into their DMs. And they message her back. They do. And uh, basically say, like, this planet that you call Earth is not that. It's this other name. We've been here longer. And um, basically, you know, this is a, this is our planet. Like, we're, we're doing what we need to do to survive. Yeah, they're, they're not necessarily malevolent, but they're not really friendly either. They basically you know. just like this is what we need to do to survive. I mean, yeah, you know. bottom line, they want to have you know they want to propagate their species and spread around the globe, and they want to warm the 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 ice caps up and make you know more watery room for them. And I get it. Yeah, and I mean, apparently they've been hibernating or something. Like they've been down here for a long time, a very long time. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that, that that ends up being what uh, what they're up to. So, but she she communicates them in the fact that they're not aggressive towards her. Like, once they understand her, they don't go after her sub or, like, where she is. They don't attack her. Yeah, she's kind of, like, off limits after that. Because then they, they're communicating. So, they're like, okay, we're, we're talking to you. They don't want to harm her. They have a rapport. They just talk. They just talk. They just you chat. Know, they just, yeah, they, they, they just chat, chat messages. <laughs> we have our exposition through chat messages. So, while all that's going on, we get, uh, we get Chomsky to do some more running around, and then he tries to... St- steal the mini sub and then he succeeds in the mini sub after again shooting a uh, uh, shooting live rounds in a uh, underwater pressurized uh, compartment Mm -hmm. like you do it's also worth noting that the reason he um was trying to do all this and stuff is that he convinced the un people to all send all their nuclear subs to come in and they're going to launch all the nukes because, you know, before one or two nukes didn't work, they were too easy to target. Now we're going to send hundreds of nukes and uh, they're, they're going to, enough of them are going to get through. So all of these submarines are all converging on this one point. And when they finally launched the torpedoes, they said the timer is going to be 20 minutes. And I said, surely this must be a mistake. There's no way it's going to take 20 minutes for these torpedoes to get to the trench. But that was signifying that we were going to have to wait for 20, 20 minutes, 20 I, more actual I, minutes. I actually checked the time. I checked the time when I saw that. Like we were at one hour and nine minutes into the film at that point. 
with, and the, and the, the, the film length was one, one hour and 32 minutes. So, so it, that was roughly accurate oh to how long, much longer we had to get through. I mean, it wasn't quite 20 minutes, but it's just amazing that the, the, the submarines, I, I mean, what, what is the actual effective range of a torpedo? Like, like in World War II, did they, did they shoot a torpedo that just traveled through the water for 20 minutes? I, I have what, to can, imagine. Can a modern torpedo travel through the water for 20 minutes? I mean, maybe a modern one can, but like... It just seemed like 20 forever. minutes yeah. is an eternity. I mean, 10 minutes would be an eternity. Yeah. I mean, I mean, cause it's moving pretty fast. Yeah. But I mean, from that far away, if you're going to shoot from that far away, you're giving your enemy untold advantage to shoot it and destroy it before it ever reaches you. Oh, it's also worth mentioning that the, the trench was visible to these submarines when they fired. Yeah. So there's no way you could see that far to a trench either that's going to be 20 minutes away no so so i mean like the scale is off the the time is off the depth is off only only the best people worked on this film ken yes the most the most technically astute like 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 in in what wartime battle condition would somebody fire a torpedo to go for 20 minutes I don't know. I mean, okay, okay. So, so granted, there's they are nuclear submarines. These are nuclear w- weapons. So, I guess you wouldn't want to be right next to it when you fired. So, I mean, that that is actually a reasonable consideration. Hmm. You would want some mini- some minimal safe distance, especially if you're going to send a hundred of those things. Yeah. But I mean, think of the environmental impact of launching a hundred a hundred nuclear weapons into a a trench in the North Pole. I mean, you got to wonder if, if it's just as bad as whatever the harm that the eels were causing, or worse. You know, because I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of heat energy released all at once and half life. You know. Yeah, I mean, that would be radioactive for quite a long time. Yeah, I remember uh, a long time ago when I was a kid, I was watching some twenty twenty documentary or something, and they were talking about a lake in Russia where they had detonated a nuclear weapon in there, and it's going to be radioactive for twenty thousand years. Now, granted, you know, in, in the oceans, there's a lot more circulation and dilution. But even so, 100 nuclear weapons in the ocean all at once. Just seems like a, uh, an environmental catastrophe. So anyway, that's, that's what happens. Yeah, but that's what happens when the G8 and the UN approve such a measure. So we're, we're just watching these torpedoes slowly inch towards the target for 20 minutes while all these other things are happening. And... Uh, I mean, what do we even want to say about the rest of this film? The, re- the rest of this film, just it's just kind of, it's just a hot mess. It's just a hot mess. There's, there's you know, like there, there's bad editing in this film. There's, there's a couple of really, there's one really bad jump cut. Um, when one guy gets electrocuted in the mini sub, uh, his death scene is, is comically badly edited. And... The, the sound doesn't match up with what he's doing either. The sound on this as well, early in the film, uh, in the, the original uh, gun showdown in the torpedo room of the hubris, um, there was definitely a line of dialogue where that didn't. Uh, the last couple words matched up with the guy's mouth, but the rest of it was just all over the place. Yeah. And that was a lot like this this whole movie as a whole. It was like there was sound, there was things happening. It didn't exactly make sense. It didn't really 
really come together and, and the the ending is sloppy for sure and there it, was there was another part too where uh where there was a cut where they made between two things and they didn't bother to cut the, recut the music they just cut the video with the music again yeah, so that the yeah, music was yeah. out of place on the se- the second cut yeah and then it went back to the correct music on the next uh view and there was also a, another great scene I, I think the last time they, they introduced the un uh with the title card is, is toward the end of the film and they just jump in for like 10 seconds united nations command center for one guy to say one line just for one guy to say one line and then they jump out and then uh, now that we've we've mentioned about the trench a little bit more my my favorite t- title card of the movie is when we're on the station which is up in the top of the the ice looking down into the trench. Yes. And then when we go down to the trench, the trench gets its own title card for another like three seconds the, of a view of a trench. The trench gets its own title card. Yes. It's amazing. And, and for nothing to happen, just for, for nothing a, to happen, a view just, of it. Just to see a couple of eels swim towards it, the trench. Yeah. Or the Polaris. They actually sorry, said the name. Pol- yeah. Polaris Trench. Yeah. yeah. The Polaris Trench. So that was uh, that, that was when I realized what, what a kind of farce the titles for this movie were. They're, they're pretty bad, yeah. Oh, and so. the, the one where it zoomed in. Oh yeah, yeah, that was that was good, and then it became a white background in yeah. the snow. Yeah, yeah, that was great. So yeah, the uh, oh man, just just what a what a wonderful film, Ken. Yeah. What's so we, we like to cover a certain 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 topics every every segment here. So uh, let's talk about the best performance and the worst performance of this film. This is um this is gonna be a real hard one for me today. I think uh, best performance might be uh like one of the people that just dies because <laughs> no not really not really. Uh, I would say um what's the name of the guy the ch- the the real chisel jaw guy? Oh um, Bud Manstrong. Yeah, that was uh that was Captain Rains. Captain Rains. Captain Rains. Yeah. I guess him. Yeah, see, I I would go for uh, I would actually go for um, Simone McKinnon who played Doctor Fletcher. Like she was, she gave a a, a bona fide uh, good performance considering what she had to work with. Okay. For worst performance, I mean, they were the two actors in the film, so they, they were the two people that had been in multiple. Yeah, at, at that point, anyway. Yeah. Um. I would definitely say, like, for worst performance, I would say almost the rest of the supporting cast yes. qualifies on this one. Yeah. Um, between, like, the bad, wavering accents at the UN. The first captain? The first captain who had, like, super extra facial expressions. The first captain in the sub and the first captain of the station were both pretty bad. They, yeah, they, they definitely but were. Like, they were incredibly ham-fisted the, on this. The, the station captain was like ch- trying to channel his like cartoon villain face, mm-hmm. and like he succeeded a couple times. Yes, and then, um, like with with the team that goes down to the hubris with Doctor Fletcher and Reigns, uh, one of the torpedo techs. Mm. Um, I can't remember his name. Uh, it was a uh, Hispanic gentleman. He also had some incredibly bad facial expressions. Yeah. But he was. I liked him though. He was. He was good. He was a good. He was a good actor. His ish. Uh, to me, he wasn't as bad as, as the. Um, he was not as bad as some of them. Yeah, the the commanding guy and the generic military people were just terrible. Yeah, he, he he was a little better. Yeah, but his his death scene was terrible. His some of his delivery lines and some some of his um, um, emotings were uh, just over the top. 
all of the people in the submarine had like a look on their face like someone peed in their Cheerios. Like nobody was happy to be working on this film in the submarine. <laughs> it was not a fun film to make. It doesn't look like no. Just a small room, turning some dials, and uh, trying to look serious. So what would you say the best plot point of this film was? Um, I would say the best plot point would be how they end up using the station at the end. That's okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. I would say that's the most well thought out part uh, as far as something that makes sense and uh, can give our, our heroes their... You know, we, we, we won the day, you know. I think that was probably the smartest uh, thing that they did in the film. Worst plot point? You don't have anything for best plot point? <laughs> are you just agreeing with me? Oh, I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and have to agree with you on that one. Okay. Because I, I, I just don't have much. <laughs> for worst plot point, I would say um, just giving the UN it, its prominence and everything. And another reason why they may have gone with the UN, because I mean, like, you know, we've talked about how like the UN headquarters was like a community college theater. They probably couldn't do anything even remotely passable for an actual like Washington, D.C. location. Yeah, that's true. That would have cost a lot more. That would have actually have cost some money to make believable. Whereas you could just have this room where you put a bunch of country flags in the background and it's like, oh, yeah, UN. UN. Yeah, the UN. We'll just have the un take care of everything in this film. Yeah. I would I would say the worst plot point to me is them going back to the station. Like Oh, that was terrible because too. Because yeah. we were so ready at that point. It's okay. Like, hey, we're we're on For the, the lo- continuation of the film, yeah. We're on the little sub. We've escaped the big place. Okay, we're headed towards the conclusion. Yeah. And but, then they But we weren't. Okay, you know what? You know what? I, I'm gonna have to defer to your judgment on that. I think you're right. <laughs> I mean I think that that really is the worst worst you're plot right point. too, but as far as yeah, like, but I mean, I I think your yours carries a little more weight. I think like we were both just basically like, no, like don't go back. Like, come on, really, this is happening. It happened. It did. It happened. Unfortunately, and we sat through it for a number of minutes and while we, it happened. We weren't even what halfway done at that point, or just barely halfway no, done. We, we were a little a little more than halfway. I think. I mean, we were like two thirds. But that should have been the like. That should have been like. Like we're headed to the finish line. Like that should have been the light at the end of the tunnel. It really should have been. Like you should have had like 10, 15 minutes after that. Like we're off the station. It's going you know, down. It's, it's getting sub- destroyed. It subverted our expectations. It sure did. So final score and recommendation. Um, Rotten to- or not Rotten Tomatoes. IMDb gives this 2.9 out of, out of 10. Now, normally when, when I, I'm like kind of iffy on a film, I'll give it like a five or a six. But usually, you know, like a film I like, I rate it about an eight or nine. I think the 2.9 rating on this is, is pretty fair. Because it was, um, even as bad as it is, there's enough of it that's bad enough that it's enjoyable. But I would never, ever, ever want to watch it again. So definitely below a four for sure. It did have some production value. Like it had technology, it had CGI, even if it was terrible CGI, you know, the costumes were decent. The lighting was decent. Cinematography was decent, but the editing was, was bloody terrible. So maybe, maybe a two, I'd give it a two out of 10. Yeah. I, 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 that's exactly where I'm at. I think, uh, two, uh, just because it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. So, uh, it's definitely, 
there was very little that I was interested in this movie. Like, I, it, I was looking for things to make fun of the entire time because that's what kept me from being... That, that's what kept you engaged. That's what kept me out of crippling depression, yeah, basically. Yeah, because I, I could not watch this film and care about any of the characters. No. I, I didn't care what happened at the end. I didn't care about what was going to become of anybody. Even the good guys didn't have enough depth to their characters to like really care about what was going to happen to them. I mean, incredibly you superficial. Knew, you knew too. I think this was a movie where like the main two people were like really never in danger either. Like everyone else was in danger way more than they were. And all the time at that. The only time they were in danger was basically when uh, at the end. That's basically it. No, they were never really imperiled. So they just, uh, it was just really bad. The effects were really bad. The first time we saw the eels, uh, I knew that I was in in for suffering for the majority of the rest of the film, and especially when the first one came out of the water and you got like just a real good close up of it. I'm just like, this is, this is so bad. So they're electric eels too. And if anybody has seen the first Hellraiser film, um, there's some like electrical type of bolts in that film as well. And those were all hand animated by Clive Barker and another gentleman over a weekend while they were drinking as the story goes. And those looked a lot better than these. Yeah. And this movie is what? 16 years later. I I think this movie could have been, um, cause I think the, the actual stage, the, um, the, uh, set for the, um, hubris. Yeah. The set for the hubris was actually pretty good on the inside. Yeah. I, it, it was decent. You know, I mean, it, I definitely, it was complicated enough. There was different rooms where you knew where they were as soon as you, you could just see what was, what, where they were at. Yeah. You the, kind of yeah. had a feeling for how all the rooms were connected and it did seem like a place, you know, I felt like that was probably it, the strongest part. It, it was a believable set for sure. And it was. It definitely had that late '90s uh, sci-fi vibe, because mm-hmm. um, like I was telling Ken, you know, going into this, I knew nothing about it, not even what year it was made. I I, I personally would have placed this film about 1998, and if it had actually been made in like say 1998 or 1997, I might be a little more forgiving on some of its uh, technical faults. I mean, maybe it was a leftover set from from. those times possibly but i mean also but also just the bad cgi i mean they were making cgi at that level yeah that's for sure like years before they should have been it should have been just a little bit more polished up at that point yeah yeah but i think if they if they would have made the exterior shots all models um especially for the station and for the craft and the submarines and all that kind of stuff it actually i think would have held up better to time for time oh sure um than what they did with the CGI. They should have just made as little CG as possible and really relied more on models. Yeah, they they really got away from models like at the end of the 90s and they moved toward the, the cheap CGI and we're still in that era. Yeah. We're, we're, we're coming out of it a little bit. Yeah. Like they're starting to use practical effects a little bit more, but CGI has been just, I, I don't know, I think it's been one of the worst things that happened to sci-fi cinema. It's The problem is people don't know when to use it and when not to use it. And that's the real problem. It's if you have someone who knows where the line is, what things you should have a physical thing for, um, and make a smart decision about it, not just say, oh, well, we want to make it look shiny or, you know, we have the budget, let's do it, you know? Like, you know, like, you know, so Tron, the first film to use CGI, really, that was a 
a technical masterpiece, and that film holds up well today because of the way that it was implemented. Uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Um, that, uh, there's a sequence where they show the Genesis probe on, uh, in action on a, on a dead planet. That's a fantastic use of CGI. There are many instances where it can be done really well, like Battlestar Galactica, the, um, the reimagined series in the early two thousands that used a lot of CGI. Yeah. Well, granted that, you know, was well financed, but they did a passable job with their CGI. And I, it just kills me that they did a better job of CGI in like the eighties and the early nineties than they did, you know, over a dozen years later. Yeah. This yeah. one was obviously, um, the people who did it just didn't know how to make anything look believable. And, uh, it just looked, it's just interesting seeing how CGI has developed at different times in different parts of the world. It's almost like they're all learning from scratch. But like also they could have made those monsters shadowy, kept them in the shadows for a while. They should have. Instead of just, they put them all like direct light, like right away where you could see everything about them. And that was really the problem. They could have kept half of this movie more in the shadows and it would have looked way better to show less. Which is funny because of how darkly lit a lot of these sets were. Yeah. Like they definitely were going for that vibe, Mm -hmm. but they didn't use it in some of these other instances. And it makes me wonder. Yeah. Did they know how to uh, make the do the CGI for the shadowy monsters? Because the rest they of the, did in the film in the in the ocean, but the, not in the buildings. The rest of the stuff outside and underwater is supposed to be like under the ice, so there wouldn't be a lot of light down there. You know, almost none. So especially at the North Pole, it wouldn't make sense to have brightly lit anything. Anything, yeah. yeah. But there you go. What else do we have here? I think that's about it, Ken. That's it. Oh, that's I guess it. that was the rating, huh? That's the rating. Oh man. So that wraps up another uh, segment of Complimentary Cinema here at the O&M Stockroom. We're your hosts. I'm Brian McGarry. And this is Ken O'Malley. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in. Uh, the links for this film are going to be in the description below. Uh, please leave your comments and feedback if you watch this film. Let us know what you think. And have a lovely week. Mm-hmm.